Well, welcome um, again. I, so, if you've been around, you know I like to talk about things at church that you don't talk about in church, like tattoos, right? So, um, it's become kind of the language, the the art of our culture today, and they they tell stories, right? Our, our, if you have ink, you know what I'm talking about. For me, um, I've, I don't remember how many, uh, but they, they t- all tell stories for me. There's one on my arm. The first one I got, I got after I uh, went through a divorce and began to overcome that and move ahead, and it's a cross. And on one side of the cross, the Celtic cross, there's thorns, and another side is a sun, and it's the, the sign that even through the darkness and pain that in the cross it brings about a new day of life, that there's always hope, no matter how dark or painful or prickly life gets, that it brings about new life. There's, um, there's fish hooks here. There was a, in, in ancient culture, it was sometimes dangerous to be a Christian. And so the way they would identify one another is somebody would draw a line in the sand, and if the other person was a Christian too, they'd draw the other line to make the symbol of a, of a fish in the sand as a way of kind of connecting with someone. And in addition to that, I like to fish, and Jesus called us fishers of men. And so you've got a hook for each of those kinds of fishing that form the fish for me. Um, that's one of the ones, that's one of the newer ones there. Um, on my arm, this one's the one that's a little, little hardest to tell what it is when you're moving around or have a, a brace something. Somebody's like, is that a snake? I'm like, no, I don't like snakes. It's a wave. Like you see, it's a wave. So the waves have, have a really incredible meaning for me. I know a lot of people like the ocean, but um, about six years ago, when we were getting ready to start Hydrant Church, we had closed what was Goldsboro Wesleyan, and I felt really good about myself. And uh, we were at the beach for vacation just before we were ready to launch this thing called Hydrant Church. It had no strange name. It felt even stranger back then. And, um, and I wasn't sure if it was going to work. I wasn't sure if it mattered. It just felt a little crazy. And we, were, we got to the beach. It was the first night. And um, we told the kids, play in the sand, run, don't get soaking wet. If you have children, you know, soaked head to toe. You give up. It is. They're wet. We're walking. And I'm walking, and I'm kind of talking to God, and I felt like he just said, as I was looking at these waves, listen, this whole hydrant thing's going to happen like these waves. It's going to come in in waves, and you just need to be ready. There'll be times when the waves are small and times when the waves are big, and you need to be ready to ride them all. He didn't tell me then there would also be undertow jerking things back out, but, you know, he holds some things to himself. So... Waves. It's going to happen like waves. And I did. I thought, okay, we had pizza. It's a late night. It's been a long day. Whatever. And it's like I'm crazy, right? I'm crazy. That's what I usually think. The first when I hear God talk to me, like the first thought is I'm crazy. And um, so we're walking, and there's a guy fishing. And this is before I had started fishing. And he was fishing, and he had, um, you know, he had it cast way out in the surf in his holder in the sand, and I just asked, hey, do you mind if we walk under it? Because it was really high. He's like, yeah, maybe it'll bring me luck. And as I walked under it, I prayed, God, you're like, you have all kinds of miraculous fish catches in Scripture. Would you let this guy catch something for being nice to us? We walked 10 or 15 minutes down, and we came back. And so it was about a half hour later, we come back. He says, hey, as soon as you walked under my line, I caught a shark. And it was so much fun. 
God just kind of said, yeah, that one was for you, not for him, so that you knew the waves thing was real. And so the waves is a reminder, and sometimes when the undertow is pulling things here, I'm just reminded, look, it happens in waves. Be ready to ride whatever wave comes, and he'll take care of it. The, uh, the sailboat goes back um, a long time. I was struggling with whether I, what, what God was asking me to do. And I was ready to leave pastoral ministry, ready to leave working in churches. I was going to go be a professor. I thought, I'm not very good at this people thing, God. I need a job where I can just teach and not worry about people, which if you teach, it's all about people. I'm just not very bright then. And um, I, thought, I thought, okay, I'm not really sure what you want me to do here. And I was at an event out in Colorado, and there was... Um, there was a prayer walk thing around the outside, and I'm doing the different stations, and one of them is right by the road, which I thought was an odd place to have a prayer station, but I'm right by the road, and the wind is just blowing hard. And as I'm, I'm praying and kind of following the instructions for this prayer walk, I'm feeling this wind on my back, and I felt like God just kind of spoke to me in that moment. He said, listen, your life is going to be like uh, a sailboat without a rudder. And you're going to do this pastor thing, but um, I want you to do it this way. I, I, when I tell you to put up the sail, and I'll be the wind, I'll be the spirit, I'll move you where you need to go. You don't have any control, no rudder. And then I'll tell you when to put the sail down. And you put it up and down when I tell you to, and I'll take care of where you go. And so it's become one of those images in my office. I have several little sailboats, and this is that reminder that he's the one who's taking this thing where it needs to go, and I can trust him to do it. In fact, if I try, there's no rudder, so there's no point. And it's just one of those um, reminders for me. Those, those things, these, these things are stories on my skin. This one says, let us not grow weary in doing good. The rest of Galatians 6, 9 says, for in the right time, you'll reap a harvest if you don't give up. We just talked about this in that habit series. Giving up before the right time is what gets us into trouble so often. And um, I battle at times wanting to give up. Darkness will cloud my thoughts and my emotions and um, kind of nearly shut me down and make me not want to get out of bed, not want to do anything, not enjoy the things that I enjoy or care. I think just want to give up. And often it'll hit in times when I feel like nothing's happening, like, like you're trying, you're doing the right things and nothing's happening. And, um, and I needed a reminder to not grow weary in, in doing good. But in addition to that, there's spears under stars. And there's a story in Nehemiah where where God sent Nehemiah as a leader back to Jerusalem. His people had been exiled. They were starting to come back. And he says, I want you to go back and I want you to rebuild the wall. I want you to take care of my people there. And they started to rebuild the wall and people came against them. You do anything good, somebody's going to not like it. And, and, and they started coming against them. And so he posted a guard even late into the night. One person would be holding the spear and the other person would be working. And they stood guard for one another. Even late into the night, and it's a reminder of what we are as God's people. We stand guard with those spears for one another. We'll all have those times when we want to give up. 
And so much of what I feel like he's asked me to do is to be that one who stands guard, even late into the night when the darkness seems like it's encroaching, to be the one who reminds us God has a purpose in this. God's at work. He hasn't abandoned us. I know we were just in exile, but he's bringing us home. Good things are coming. Keep working. Keep building the wall. Even if you get stuck on the poop gate. Anybody feel Nehemiah, chapter 2, some poor dude. It says that he had to rebuild the dung gate. He rebuilt the gate that literally goes through the sewage on its way out of town. We all get stuck on the dung gate once in a while. I'll hold the spear for you while you work. If you'll hold the spear for me when it's my turn to get in there. Because we all do. We all do. Exile is a part of life for so many of us, all right? It's in, in, in Scripture, what happened is God's people didn't listen. They were, they were given this promised land, and, and they rebelled, and they were blind, and they, were, they didn't take care of one another, and they, they fell short, and they just radically disobedient. And, and God had to get their attention, and he allows uh, foreign empires to take them into exile, to come and lead them out of their land and, and drop them in a new place that wasn't home, that didn't have the temple, and it felt like God abandoned them. They felt dislocated and discouraged. They felt like they had been displaced and dominated, like life was destroying them. And it's, and it's Isaiah who speaks into this season of life when things aren't going right. I mean, much of the ink that, uh, that we have today has to do with overcoming the struggles we face. To be honest, it tells the story of something we've beaten, we've overcome. It tells the story of our joys and our excitements. And, and um, the plot line of the book of Isaiah is that though God's people fail, God refuses to abandon them. And he's sending one to lead them out. And over and over again we see this. His refusal to abandon them. In Isaiah 49, 16, you don't have to go there. It's just a simple verse. But it's a simple verse about God's tattoos. God's tattoos. God has a tattoo. And it's your name. Engraved on his hands is what it says. And the word is the same word used for tattooed. Your name is tattooed on God's hands. I have my wife and children's name tattooed on my arm. They are a permanent part of my life. They are the thing that I would lay everything down for. They are the ones that get the best of me when I'm at my best. And they will always be the most important ones to me. They are the ones that I take responsibility for, I love and lay down my life for. They are the ones of great value to me. And when God says, your name is tattooed on my hands, he is saying, you're mine. I love you. I'll lay it all down for you. You are always mine. Isaiah 49, 16, God's tattoos. But if we keep looking in Isaiah, we find that there are some tattoos that he has put on our souls, on our hearts, that are much deeper and more impactful and more connected to our identity than anything we can put on our skin. 
right? Like for me, when I, when I think about the, the ink that I have, it connects to who I am, the stories of who I am, the cross on my back or um, the, the cross on my arm, the, the family names, Joshua 1, 9, the, the do not grow weary and do it. They connect to who I am. They reveal something of my story. And when we look at Isaiah chapter 43, we find four tattoos that God has etched on our souls from the beginning. They tell us something about who we are, no matter how we try to cover them up or ignore them. Isaiah chapter 43, you can turn there if you have your Bibles, feel free to use your phone or whatever. And uh, Isaiah chapter 43, if you use one of the Bibles in the chairs, just open to the middle, start working your way to the back. It's a long book. It's actually three books smashed together under one name. But Isaiah chapter 43, and we'll begin at verse 1. It says this, But now this is what the Lord says, He who created you, Jacob, He who formed you, Israel, Do not fear. If you realize that, fear is what most often keeps us from becoming who we were created to be. You're like, I'm not scared of nothing. Liar. You're scared of being scared. Scared of failure. Scared of screwing it up, scared of disappointment, scared of letting people, scared of letting people down, afraid of what you might actually be able to do, what God might call you to do. We all have these fears, and He calls us and invites us out of them. He says, He says to us, Do not be afraid, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I've called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt for your ransom, cushion Seba in your stead. Since you are precious and honored in my sight. You are precious and honored in my sight. And because I love you, I will give people in exchange for you, nations in exchange for your life. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. I will bring your children from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory. Whom I formed and made. Four tattoos here that we'll look at over the next couple of weeks. The first is, you are mine. The second is, I will be with you. The third, I love you. And the fourth, I created you for my glory. Isaiah 43, verse 1. Hear it again. But now this is what the Lord says. He who created you, Jacob. Who formed you, Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name or called you by name. You are mine. You are mine. In the midst of everything they had gone through, in the midst of exile, you have God calling them, inviting them, reminding them that there is hope. Even In the darkest time, when they felt like God had abandoned them, that he'd left them to be conquered and overcome, defeated and forgotten, 
He says, nope, there's still hope. There's still hope. There is still hope, even in the darkest moment. And he says, there is still hope. He says, you are mine because I made you. Because I created you. See, this, the, the passages in Genesis 1 and 2, when they were likely actually written, is during the exile. During the exile. God's people had been withdrawn from their nation. Their, their temple, their land had been destroyed. And they're now living somewhere else with other gods who seem to have power over them. And what stories do they tell to remind them who they are? To remind them whose they are? They go all the way back to the very beginning of everything and said, listen, your God is the creator. He is the one who has made all things and sustains all things. He is the one who has made you. And when you get to those passages in Genesis chapter 1, he makes everything. The day and the night, the land, the animals, the sea, all of it. And after every day, he says, ooh, this is good. This is good. And then he makes humanity. And he says, ooh, this is very good. The word barah. In Hebrew, is the one used here in, 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 in Isaiah for, for creating. And it's, it has to do with creating from nothing. And the only subject of that verb in the entirety of Scripture is God. He's the only one who creates. Everything that is, is because He made it. Everyone who is, is because He made you. If you are here, if you are breathing, if you are alive, if you have been created, you have been created because he wanted to make you. But you are here because he wants you here. Not like here in this room right now, but here, alive, breathing. He has made, he may want you here in this room right now. I tend to think so. It's a good room to be in. Anyway, you are here. You are alive. You are breathing because he wants you to be. Not by some accident, but because He wants you. He has made you, you are His. And He has made you and looked at you and said, Ooh, this is, this is very good. This is very good. He is very good. She is very good. I've made them. I am so proud. I believe in what's possible. He sees in you and me what we can't even begin to imagine. In Colossians chapter 1, in Colossians chapter 1 verse 16, we see that when he has made things, he has made all that he matters to him. You matter to God. You matter because he has made you and you are his. We belong to God through creation. So he says here, I created you, Jacob. But then he doesn't just create us and abandon us. He says, I created you, Jacob, and I formed you, Israel. We are his by formation. He has created us, he has formed us, and he signed his name and said, this one's mine. I made this one, I shaped this one. The really interesting thing, though, Jacob, Israel, right? If you're familiar with the Old Testament, then you know that there's Abraham and then Isaac and then Jacob and kind of the lineage of forefathers for the people of God. Jacob's name doesn't stay Jacob. 
it becomes Israel, which is where we get the name for the nation, for the people. There's a moment when his name is changed. It's not a fun moment. In fact, Jacob has run from God most of his life, done things his own way, and God finds him in the middle of the night and wrestles with him. Physically wrestles with Jacob all night long. If you've ever argued with God, you maybe can relate a little bit. It feels a bit like wrestling. And you never win. He wrestled all night, grappling, and he held on until finally he says, I'm not letting go until you bless me. God says, well, it's morning, it's time to go. Touches his hip, never walks the same again. Painful moment of dislocation. And he blesses him with a new name, Israel. Israel essentially means I fight with God. God's people, their name. I fight with God. Your name, I fight with God. (laughs) But here's the genius of it. In Isaiah and Jeremiah both, the relationship between God and those he loves is described like a potter and clay. Potter and clay. I don't know how familiar you are with the process of creating pottery. You can head out to the western part of the state, Seagrove, Randleman, Ashboro areas, find all kinds of amazing pottery. Potters are violent people. I know you think of them as hippies and whatever. No. Do you know what they do? They take that lump of clay and the word, they they throw it. That's what it's called. They throw it. Now, before they can ever do anything to shape the clay into anything, they have to do what's called wedging. You take this lump of clay and you throw it down on the table as hard as you can. In hopes of pressing out air bubbles and, 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 and beginning to soften it. So they throw it and they beat it and they fold it and they twist it and they throw it again. Sometimes for hours before they even begin to do anything else. And then there are other words for things that they do. Words like slapping and throwing and firing, chopping, breaking, It's all very violent. And it's the way that God describes what he does to form us. And life hits. And we get slapped and thrown and twisted and broken. We get fired. And we, our first thought is God's abandoned me. God has forgotten about me. I'm getting beaten on every side, twisted, torn up, thrown down. God, where are you? He says, what do you mean? I'm forming you. All of those things are not the signs that we have been abandoned. They are the signs that he's doing something in us. Now listen, don't hear me wrong. God didn't make all the bad crap in your life happen. But he uses all of it to shape you and form you. I've been able to do more work in helping people who are, who are struggling in marriage or who are going through divorce because of what I've been through. Did God make that happen? No. But he used it to form me into a person who was much more compassionate and understanding than I was before it happened. 
He's used every failure and every disappointment to help me. Every depression bout, everything that I face, all of the things that I at the time thought, God, where are you? Why would you do this? Why would you let this happen? Are the very things that form me into who I am to be able to do the things that he asked me to do. Now the unfortunate part of this is that when a potter has completed the project and they put it in the fire and they bring it out and glaze it and they put it back in the fire and they pull it out and they put it in a case and they maybe sell it, maybe use it, maybe just look at it like art. It's done. The problem is we're not done. So here's what happens. He shaped us and formed us and we're ready to be used now and he uses us and we get broken. And the word here in scripture is yatzar. And in addition to being formed, it also means to rework. He's constantly reworking us and shaping us and forming us and bringing the best out of us and making us useful to those around us, helpful to our fellow human beings, inspiring, encouraging those who bring the best out of others because he's brought the best out of us. Now, there are really ancient techniques that are used to take things, pottery that are broken. In many cultures, they'll use gold to remake it so it's stronger than it ever was before and more valuable than it ever was before. So even our broken moments can be used. Even the most devastating things, even the things we feel like leave us completely shattered and useless are the very things that set us up for all that we could become, for all that he's trying to do in us. And so he takes us, and he takes that clay, and he forms it, and he signs it, because it's his. He made it, and he shaped it. And he says, you're mine. You're mine, not in a possessive, I make you do what I want, but in that proud father kind of way. When you hold that child, you say, this is mine. When I, when I put my family's names on my arm and they're mine, they are my love, my responsibility, my heart, my everything, right? And this is what God says when he writes on the deepest part of your soul, you are mine. I formed you, Jacob. I shaped you, Israel. I have made you and I have formed you. Now, whenever we are formed, it's always for a a purpose. He forms us for a purpose. Every painful thing is used. Every broken moment is used. But I, I think that Viktor Frankl in his book, The, the Search for Meaning, has a, a really good way of helping us understand this purpose in life stuff. See, what, what tends to happen, especially in Christian circles... We look for the will of God, and it's like this thing you got to find, like in a video game. It's at the very end of the last level, and you find it, and now you've got it, and you follow it. Or you, you get this perfect will of God is this weird churchy thing we say, right? But what if, what if it didn't work that way? What if instead of asking, what is God's purpose for my life, or what is the purpose of my life? We started to ask a little different question. What is life asking of me right now? What is God asking of me right now? 
Because then what happens, instead of demanding that life give us some purpose, we start to infuse every moment of life with purpose. I think that's what God intended. Like, if you want to know God's will, God's will is the common good. Like, well-being. It's what he created us for, to enjoy him and all creation for eternity. So what moves us in that direction? Today, what are you asking me to do today? I may have these big questions about what he wants me to do one day, but what he asked me to do today was to worship him. To shake someone's hand, to meet a stranger, to share a cup of coffee, to go to lunch, to to spend some time with my kids, to take a nap. Some of you just need to take a nap. It's been one of those weeks. And it infuses meaning into that moment. Purpose into that moment. Not looking for some big purpose in life, but... Infusing purpose in every moment of life because it's been given to us. God says, you're mine, I'm forming you. When we begin to discover this tattoo in the depths of our soul, it begins to allow us to see life differently. To even see our struggles, our disappointments, our, our failures, the things we face, our circumstances. Because no longer are they something we have to escape. There's something we can go into openly and with a full heart and anticipation. And that'd make them easier. God does not solve all your problems. I hate to say it. I wish he did. This whole preaching thing would be a lot easier. But that's not how it works. But he is always forming us. He is always shaping us, always bringing the best out of us. In fact, he's even doing that when we're trying to get away from him. He says in, this, in, this, in Isaiah 43, 1, I have redeemed you or rescued you. It's this word ga'al in Hebrew, and, it's, and it has to do with the way that family structures and villages worked in that time. Right? So there would be a patriarch for a group of 100 or 150 people. And that patriarch made sure that everybody had everything they needed, had all the protection they needed, all the resources they needed. And it was each one in the community was his responsibility, right? And so if you had that niece, the, 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 the guy in the village across the way, across the hills, decided he wanted, he came and took her at night, it was your job as the patriarch to go back and get her. And bring her back no matter what. It's kind of what we see when Abraham goes and rescues Lot. Takes an army and does what he has to do to bring Lot home. So if you've got that nephew who has this little bit of a rebellious streak. And he keeps running off and he keeps getting into trouble. And keeps getting into debt and gambling whatever else. The patriarch's job every single time was to go and get him. And bring him home. And in that language of redemption. There's always a cost. There's always a price to pay. There's always a sacrifice and a sense of responsibility. And throughout scripture, we see this image of God as that patriarch, that redeemer, the one who goes after us and brings us back home every time. No matter how many times we run, no matter how many times we hide, no matter how much trouble we create for ourselves, he says, I am your redeemer. I have redeemed you. You 
are mine. I've come after you. And we see it. It is the the core narrative of Scripture. God Himself in Jesus came to rescue us and paid whatever price it took. It paid whatever price it took to redeem us and bring us back into the family. And he did it before we even knew we were rebellious. Even before we knew the problems we had created for ourselves. Even before we realized our sin. Even before we cared. He has redeemed us. When we are actively running, he has redeemed us. He has already rescued us because he says, you are mine and I'm coming after you. You are mine, and I'm coming after you. We call it, in Wesleyan traditions, provenient grace. Grace that goes before. Grace that chases you down from the moment you are born until your last moment. Grace chasing us down. And the price he paid was his body broken for us and his blood spilt for us. The price he prayed was his son. Do you know how you figure out how much something's worth? It's worth whatever someone's willing to pay for it. You have that car that you're going to go trade, and I know you think it's worth $20,000. you are going to pull up on that lot, and they'll say, no, we'll give you seven. Your car's not worth twenty; It's worth seven because that's what somebody's willing to pay you for it. Do you realize how much God was willing to pay for you? So how much... You're really worth? You're worth everything to him. He created you. He formed you. He redeemed you. And he says, you're mine. Why would I do anything else? I will always come for you. And then he says in in Isaiah 43, 1, I called you by name. I invited you into the family can't force it on you from before you were born your soul was marked you were mine tattooed on your very being you are mine I'm forming you I'm redeeming you and I'm inviting you into the family you see we do this thing at Christmas Uh, we've done it ever since we moved here into Goldsboro because Goldsboro is full of displaced people (laughs) people who are disconnected from family because of military or other things, some who can get back and some who can't. They just get stuck here at Christmas. I don't know if you've ever spent a holiday alone. It's pretty miserable. So from the time we moved here, we started saying on Christmas Day, our house is your house. You are our family. Please come. Anyone who wants to. Anyone who needs to. Some people we don't know show up. There have been times when there were five, and there were times where there were 25, and people usually stay all day because you're family, and that's what family does. And we invite people into our family who need family, and that's the story of Hydrant. Like, that's just what we do all the time and say, hey, we need family. And this is the place where you can find it if you want it. But all we can ever do is invite. I can't, like, go drag you in. I can't make you speak to someone across the aisle or across the cafe. I can't, can't force family on you. But I can invite. And that's what we see God doing in Isaiah 43.1. He says, I'm calling you by name. I've known your name before you did. 
And I call you by name. I'm inviting you because you are mine. But here's what a lot of us do. We treat this you are mine tattoo like one we're embarrassed about. In life group last week, we got into this conversation about tattoos. And one poor guy, he's got like the worst tattoo ever. Like if I had this tattoo, I would wear long sleeves all the time. And thankfully, it's like almost in his armpit, kind of hidden. Um, so it's terrible. Do you know what you do with terrible tattoos? You cover them up. You either cover them up with clothes or you go get a new tattoo over it, right? You, you get it covered up. There's a whole TV show about tattoo cover-ups, right? That's not the name of it. I don't know what the name of it is. But it's, it's all about that. And when he invites us, he says, I created you, I formed you, and I redeemed you. I'm inviting you home. We can look at that tattoo and we can realize who we are and come home. Or we can try to cover it up and hide from it, pretend like it's not there and not real and it's not who we are. And so many of us do that. We try to cover it up with our successes. And this is who I am. We cover it up with our achievements. You know what a lot of us do without realizing? We cover it up with our failures. God, that's not who I am. Do you know all the things I've done? It's like, yeah, I do. You're still mine. There's nothing my kids can do to make me disown them. They're always mine. And he says that of you and me. You're mine. There's nothing you can do, nothing you've done, no accumulation of anything you define as bad that will make me turn away from you. You are mine. I have redeemed you. Will you come home? Sometimes we let the things done to us in our past cover up that tattoo. Say, no, I'm that. And that was done to us, and we see ourselves as, as trash. We see ourselves as, as those who are rejected. We see ourselves as victims. We see ourselves as worthless because of what was done to us. And we don't see you are mine. We don't see it deep on our souls. We see the pain. We see what was done to us. And so we have to let God uncover that. Because no matter how many times or what ink or stuff you try to use to cover up this tattoo... It always shines through. It always comes back through. And he will constantly be calling you by name and saying, you are mine. You are mine. And so that's the question today for all of us. Will we see that tattoo not on our skin, but on our souls? And let it remind us of whose we are. Remind us of whose we are. (laughs) It's so easy to try to cover it up, run from it, ignore it, pretend like it's not there. He has formed us, made us, redeemed us. And now invites us to remember whose we are. Christians, for as long as there have been Christians, have done weird things like eat bread and share a cup. It's weird. It's symbolic. 
It's this ordinary weird thing that God infuses with grace and it becomes sacred. Jesus sat with his first followers and he took this old practice, older than, older than him, and he took this ancient Hebrew practice, he kind of redefined it. And he took the bread and he broke it. And he says, this is my body broken for you. And he took this cup and he shared it. He says, now this is, this is my blood spilt for you. These are the price I paid for you. Know how much you're worth to me. He says, whenever you get together, remember whose you are. Be defined by who you are. Not by accomplishments or achievements, not by failures or losses, not by what's happened to us. We are defined by whose we are. The one who made us, the one who forms us, the one who redeems us and then invites us. Significant. So many religions in the world invite you and then offer redemption follow all the rules. Jesus went and redeemed us first. And they said, won't you receive it? Will you remember whose you are today? In just a moment, I'm going to pray. And then you're going to be invited and you can get up, come to the center aisle, come up, break off a piece of bread and dip it in the cup and eat it. And you'll hear the words, the body broken for you and the blood spilt for you. Because those are the price he paid to give you life now and into eternity. They are the reminders of whose we are. So as you receive them, they are his way of saying once again, you are mine. And as you receive them, they are your way of saying, I am yours. I am yours. So this table, it doesn't belong to me. It doesn't belong to Hydrant Church. It's his. His body, his blood broke. And he is calling you by name. And saying, you are mine. And as you come and receive, it is a physical way of saying, in response, I am yours. Don't know everything that means don't know all that it'll look like, but I'm going to trust you to show me because I am yours. I'm going to pray. And after I pray, if you want to come, come. If you need a moment to just sit where you're at and talk with him, do that. But when you're ready, come. It's not an obligation. Nobody can force it. Just pure invitation to remember whose you are. Let's pray.